We turn again to the book of Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and I saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west to cross the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgressions, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will this vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Then it happened while I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was speaking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep, with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. He said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. 
As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Let us pray. Lord, this is your word. It is inspired, it is without error, it is sufficient, it is perspicuous. But Lord, we understand that not all of it is perfectly clear or as clear as other parts. And Lord, we understand that this is perhaps a part that is not as clear as others. And so we pray, Lord, that you would endeavor, that you would undertake for us, we in our ignorance and in our darkness, that you would speak to us as a great light and enable us to understand this your word to our salvation, to our blessing, and to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we come to Daniel chapter 8. And here in this, very much in the thick of these prophetic visions that were given to you, Daniel, and we must understand that they are not utterly straightforward to interpret, even though there is an interpretation to be found in the very chapter itself, and we praise God for it. We know initially it is completely obvious that Daniel himself, who was gifted by God particularly to understand prophetic visions from an early age, that is the well-deserved reputation that he had, no one else could understand these things but Daniel. But even he did not understand it at all at first. And so the angel Gabriel is sent to make him understand. But even at, after that, there seems to be some suggestion, depending on how you take the last verse in the chapter, that maybe even after all of that, he did not have perfect understanding. It says in verse 27, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. And so he certainly understands enough of it to be astonished, but maybe even he did not understand every one of its details. And so I will not hesitate to say that I am not confident on every one of the details of this prophecy. But the basic outline seems to be pretty clear. We have it in the previous chapter. It gave the history of the four great empires in a schematic form, Babylon, the Medo-Persian, the Grecian, and the Roman. And here in chapter 8, we have the same. We're dealing with essentially the same uh, history, but in greater detail and greater focus. Sort of like the first two chapters of Genesis, where we have the whole in a great scope, and then we zoom in on certain aspects of it. I think that's what we have here. And for, an exa- for just one example, in chapter 7, we had the description of Alexander the Great and the establishment of that great empire given in the course of a single verse. And here we have further details of his career and of his empire given over the course of four verses. 
But I think the main focus of this chapter, and certainly the main focus of this my sermon, is on this little horn in verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host, some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as far as the prince of the host. Now, here again, we could focus on the historical figure, which many take, I think, rightly to be Antiochus Epiphanes. But as it was, as we have other examples, as we have other descriptions in, of Scripture, say in Isaiah chapter 14, of earthly kings, where at some point in the description it becomes clear if we're no longer talking about a merely human figure, but of the one that animates them, we're talking about Satan. So it is here that there is a merging and there is a, a, um, a coming together of, of both this this man, this wicked king, but of the force that animates him. We know that he has become great. It is not through his own power, but rather through his satanic power that makes him great. And so this sermon really is a looking at our, our enemy. We are looking at this enemy who is going to be broken without hand. That's our, that's our title, the enemy broken without hand. Because I think the Lord would have us to be aware of his devices. I think he would have us to be continually on our guard because we do not live in this world alone and unmolested and without any trials or troubles, but rather we are opposed by great enemies and particularly by the enemy of our souls, Satan. And so we need to understand something about this enemy. But we also need to understand that this enemy is not going to win. I know this is not the first time I've preached this particular message and I hope it won't be the last one. Because we are so frail, we are so delicate, it does not take much for us to begin imagining that actually maybe he will win this time. Now we know that 99 times in the past um, he has been defeated by Christ and we have some vague understanding that perhaps he will be defeated in the future. But it just so happens in our circumstances, as dark as they are, in the hour that comes, we imagine that maybe that won't be and that there is no light at the end of the tunnel. I want again to preach the message that this enemy is going to be destroyed. It is a message, the gospel that was first preached, the very first element of any gospel that was preached back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. But it is a gospel that is preached even tonight. This enemy, he's going to do things. He's going to cause trouble. He's going to cause problems, but he's going to be broken. It won't be because we did it. It won't be on our power. It'll be broken without hand. So, the enemy broken without hand. These four um, points, my apologies for not making them more succinct, but first, causing deceit to prosper. Second, in peace destroying many. Third, in pride exalting. And fourth, broken without hand. The title is The Enemy Broken Without Hand. And the points are causing deceit to prosper, in peace destroying many, in pride exalting, and fourthly, but broken without hand. So our first point is that he's causing deceit to prosper. In verse 25, through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And that, you see, is the great methodology of our enemy. How does he do this? How does he work? Is it indeed by brute strength and power of arms that he does his, his worst against us? No, it's by deceit. 
The method of our enemy is to deceive us. Again, from the very beginning in Genesis. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the very first thing he does is to begin to introduce doubt regarding the word of God. Has God indeed said? And he goes on to give lies and deceit. And you know, when Eve is then challenged by the Lord, questioned, what is this that you have done? What is it that she says? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, truer words never spoken. She certainly was deceived. And that modus operandi, that methodology of our enemy continues unto this day. That is what he seeks to do with us. He seeks to deceive us. It worked back then, and he's, he's, it's worked ever since to some extent, and therefore he retains it. In fact, Jesus, as he's warning his own people, you know, the disciples say, no, tell me about the end. What's going to happen in the end? And the Lord and all the things that he wants us to know of what will happen in the future, the emphasis is on the, 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 the potential to fall away. The emphasis is on the reality that Satan will come with all of his deceit. He says in Matthew 24, 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. That's an active thing. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name. Not a few. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. Then many false prophets will rise and deceive many. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Do you see how it is? This deception. This is his methodology. And it is so powerful. If possible, it might even deceive the elect themselves. Now, thankfully, praise God, we know that the elect who are upheld by the mighty hand of God, my Father who gave them to me, is, is stronger than any. And no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hands. And he says, I and my Father are one. Just so we make sure we know that Christ is also that strong. And we know so ultimately the elect cannot ultimately and finally fail. But that does not mean that they might not be severely tried and tested. It doesn't mean that they might not struggle for a time with these deceptions and lies and heresies. Well, we know that this is indeed the methodology to deceit. And unfortunately, we are very clear from this prophecy in Daniel that the deceit will prosper. It's not a plan that's not going to work. Unfortunately, to some large extent, for a time, it will work. It will prosper. This methodology of deceit will enjoy much success. You know that um, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said in John 8, uh, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. That much we know. Now notice what the next verse is. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Do you understand the logic there? It means that the deceit had so prospered and had so gathered steam and become so universal that even among the covenant people of Jesus' day, when he comes to speak the truth, it's as, as a stranger to them. They don't recognize it. They don't receive it. It's something alien to them because they had received the lie. And the deceit had prospered to that extent. Well, so Paul, the Apostle Paul has to write to Christian people in 2 Corinthians 11. But I fear 
Thus, somehow, as a serpent, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if, if he comes preach, who preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit whom you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Because such is the susceptibility of the human heart, and such is the power, the virulence, the persuasive power of the deception that Paul is concerned for them. And good ministers, faithful shepherds and elders today are concerned for their flocks because we know that this deceit will prosper. We know that it is well fitted for the default settings of the human heart. It does not come to you as something bizarre and something ugly and something repulsive. It comes to you as something that is absolutely custom made to reach you and to be attractive to you and to seem to be acceptable to you. And so we fear and we cry out to the Lord to preserve you. Notice, by the way, also it is through cunning, this, this lie, this deceit, it's going to prosper but it is through his cunning that this thing happens. Again, just to make sure we understand the nature of this, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen says, false, Such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. You see, it's not a straightforward way that he deceives us. He he does not come in his true form and speak to us his lies. He speaks to us out of his cunning, after having transformed himself, making, making him in the appearance of an angel of light. Of course, if Satan were to come in his true repulsive form as a fallen angel, as a demon cursed by God, we would not give him the time of day. But rather he comes as an angel of light and many are deceived by this cunning plan that he has. And so the lies that come do not come from the outside, brothers and sisters. We need to understand that. They do not present themselves as something that are the product of depraved, wicked sinners who are in opposition to the Lord and hate the Christian faith. They come in the guise of friends of the faiths who are just trying to spruce up the faith a little bit more and make it a little bit more acceptable in this day and time in which we live for the purpose, the good purpose of evangelism, the good purpose of apologetics. And if the church is wise, it will surely follow these wonderful prophets of light. Otherwise, the church might just disappear into nothing tomorrow. They're apostles, false apostles, transforming themselves into angels of light. And so it is no wonder then, no wonder that it is foretold in 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. It's no surprise to us, we knew that already in Daniel chapter 8, because the deceit will prosper, you see. That's our first point. Secondly, in peace, he will destroy many. It says in verse 25, he shall destroy many in their prosperity. 
Now, this is a crucial term here, so we need to take a little uh, a moment here to make sure that we get it right. The AV and the New King James, they add there in italics just so we know that that much is not in the original. And the word that then follows, that is uh, translated as prosperity, actually occurs twice in chapter 11, and there it's translated as peaceably. And I actually think that that's the better translation here. And so more literally, it is, and in peace he shall destroy many. And perhaps, perhaps it may be that the translators were a little confused. How is it, in peace he shall destroy many? That doesn't seem to work very well. Well, but actually, as we look at the larger trajectory of Scripture, as we look in clearer places to interpret the less clear, of course we understand this is precisely how Satan and those under his sway come to destroy us. They come in peace. We said this. He works by way of deceit. We've, we've said in this cunning craftiness, but how particularly, what is the manner? How did he come to Eve? Did he come yelling and waving a weapon? Certainly not. He came in peace. He came peaceably, at least in terms of appearance. Now we know in his heart he came as a murderer. That's what the word of God says. He came to the intent to murder us all. In some sense he did. Apart from Christ, he killed us all. That was the end of us. But he came feigning peace. He came speaking as if he had the best interest of the woman at heart. Oh, Eve. So sad, isn't it? You don't even know what you're missing out on. I can help you. Poor Eve, so forlorn, and this wicked God of yours, so, so mean and miserly as to withhold from you these good things. That's how he comes. He comes in peace as our counselor. You know that? He comes as a counselor speaking advice to us. Now, I want you to know that's exactly why the enmity that is given in the the cursing of the Satan, that's a gift. That warfare, that warfare that is sometimes so uncomfortable for us, it is a gift of God. If only that enmity had already been there, if only that open warfare had already been there, and that that Satan came in his armor and his weapon, he said, I'm kind of going to come get you. And Adam comes running To defend Eve, if only that had been the case. Open warfare, known. It wouldn't have happened, would it? And what he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise, he shall crush her head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that is part of the curse against Satan. It's not against our first parents. See, that's a curse of Satan, because that warfare is going to be bad for him, because he's going to have his head crushed. You're going to be destroyed utterly. But it's a good thing for the seed of the woman, that we have these things straight, that we're not buddy-buddy with a serpent. Hey, serpent, how are you? You have some words that you want to speak to me? Well, I'm all ears. Please tell me more about these things that you have in mind. No, we have warfare We need to know it and we need to be conscious of it. That we say, this is a voice of my enemy. He's coming to kill me and I will not listen to him. Because, you see, this enemy and all those whom he energizes and all those whom he speaks through, it is in peace that he destroys many. He would not destroy many if he came openly. He would not destroy many if he came in open warfare. It is actually in peace that he destroys many. 
Well, we know Jeremiah 6.13 says, From the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. What do they say? What do these false prophets say? They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Because, brothers and sisters, when we're in this world, there is no peace. We're at warfare, and we must remember that. And sadly, though, he will, in fact, destroy many by these means, as I've said. They are aware of a conflict. They have no defenses, perhaps. Perhaps this thing catches them unaware. They're, they think that they are at peace, and little do they know that there is no peace. They've been deceived by the lie. Satan comes upon them suddenly. They don't have the armor of God that we are told in Ephesians that we should put on. We should put on the whole armor of God. But, you know, if we have a feeling that we're at peace, we're actually not going to do that. And I think that those not of the Lord's elect, those whom do not have the whole armor of God even available to them, they are caught or unawares by this lion seeking whom he can to devour, of these people that are unwary, and at peace, and he destroys many of them. Well, thirdly, he does not stop there. He's not just destroying in peace and in his cunning craftiness through deceit, destroying many people. Our third point is that in pride, he exalts himself, even against God. If in peace he destroys many in pride, he exalts himself. It says in verse 25, and he shall exalt himself in his heart, and he shall rise, even rise against a prince of princes. Now, I will keep this point brief because we've discussed this last time. We have discussed uh, in, uh, the reality of, of Satan's pride. Um, but in brief, we have to understand that pride is, is at the heart of the satanic rebellion. When you look at the, the heart of Satan, of our enemy, what's there? What do you find? In a word, you find pride. You find one who has unbelievable pride that he should exalt himself against his maker. To say to the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of the eternal God, say to him, I make a better candidate to be the ruler of the universe than you do and I want to throw you down. That's unbelievable. But is it? Is it? Is it so crazy? Is it so unbelievable? Let's just think about the last time that we've sinned. Let's go back. Have your mind go back to the last time you know you sinned against the living God. What sort of thing rose in your heart? Was it in your mind? I am a mere creature. I have been given life by this God, this eternal, omnipotent, all-knowing God who has brought me into being. And he has given me the, the image of himself. I, have the, I bear the image of God and he has given me a law that I should humbly receive and obey. Or is it more of a heart of, there may be a law, but it doesn't really apply to me today. There may be a Lord, but he's not reigning at this moment. For this little moment in time, I intend to reign. I intend to be like the Most High. I intend to be like God. That's the heart of every sinner. Satan just has this to the extreme. 
Satan in his extremity doesn't just think about that, think like that on a few occasions. He thinks about that all the time in his completeness, in his totality. But ladies and gentlemen, please look at him every once in a while. I want you to look at Christ. I want you to worship Christ. But every once in a while, look at where this goes. Look at the heart of rebellion. Look at the heart of sin and see just how ugly it is. You say, I don't want to be like that. And this is where this logic leads us, this logic of sin. Well, as I say, he exalts himself even against God. Pride is at his heart, and he exalts himself even against Christ to try to pull him down. And so he has been fighting. And we have to understand that we are one with Christ. When he fights against us, now he has his drudges in, in deception. He doesn't actually care too much about them because for the most part, they're pretty safe. He throws himself against Christ. He throws himself. We see as he fought against Christ in the desert, as he fought against Christ in Gethsemane and in the, the cross and all of the ways that he's been, been fighting against him. Now his rage is directed against us. Christ himself is beyond his grasp. He is risen to be at the right hand of, of the Father and of God. And now who's around? It's his body. We're the body of Christ. If he's going to get at Christ, he's got to get at us. And so as he exalts himself against God, as he exalts himself even against the prince of princes, so he attacks his representatives in this world. In pride, he exalts himself. But fourthly, and perhaps most importantly, yet he shall be broken. He shall be broken. For a time being, as we've seen, this deceit is going to prosper and it has marvelous success to the point at which we begin to wonder, is anything ever going to change this? Is anything ever going to overcome this wicked enemy of ours who continues to do such terrible damage? We look around again, this world, how many have believed a lie? How many around us are utterly deceived? But I want you to know that he shall be broken. It says in verse 25, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. He shall be broken. Now, this enemy truly is beyond us. Now, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be, we should have a, a right understanding of Satan. Uh, But we should not live in trembling fear of Satan. We should fear God and not Satan. We should have a healthy respect for our enemy in the sense that he can do us and our loved ones damage. That's the way we should think about Satan. But we understand that he is beyond us. He's not a a foe that we we can defeat on our own. We must call in divine aid. But I want us to see that the same cannot be said of Christ. This enemy may be beyond us. But it's certainly not beyond the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the stronger man. He has come precisely for that whole point. He has come. 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. He comes as a stronger man. Again, to what? To beat up the strong man and to take his stuff, to take his rescue, his bride that has been taken captive by the strong man. The strong man would like to keep us all, every human soul, he'd like to be in, for us to be, remain in his possession, but he doesn't have the power to resist Christ. And so he does, even in this time, in this world, he comes 
and he takes from Satan those things that are his. And we know, of course, that he was broken at the cross. This was the moment of his great defeat. The very thing by which he thought he was going to have the great victory over Christ. Again, keep in mind that the details of the gospel, the details of the history that we now know, were not made known to the angels at the beginning. We know even the holy angels desired to look into the things of the gospel. So it was all a mystery to them as it was happening. And maybe, maybe in his pride and blindness, Satan really thought that he had won against the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually had somehow stirred up the crowd, stirred up his own disciple to to turn him in, to betray him, and there he was dead. Well, that's the end of it. But of course, this was precisely the way in which the Lord Jesus was going to defeat Satan. In fact, he did. And we know that his power in principle is broken. And one day it will be broken utterly, entirely, in fact. And that's what this is looking forward to. His power shall be broken without hand, without human means. But rather the Lord Jesus Christ will come and crush him. Now I think it's useful for us just to focus for a moment on the idea of without hand, right? Because it gives us a spiritual principle that we must never lose sight of. And that is that our salvation is utterly monergistic. Heard that word before? Monergistic. It is not synergistic. We've heard that word, synergy. So many things. It's very trendy to have things that are synergy. Different sources of power, different sources of ideas come together and they make synergy and they work together in something. Monergy is something utterly different than that. Where there's only one worker, only one source of power, one source of energy and effort. And that is God. Our salvation from beginning to end is utterly monergistic. We do not save ourselves. And isn't it right then that this enemy of our souls, he is going to be broken, not by ourselves, not because of our power, but without our hands entirely. Monergistically, he is broken. Isaiah 63, 3 reminds us, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples, no one was with me. You see that? I'll read it again. I have trodden this wine press, and he's speaking, by the way, of the wine press of the wrath of God, which he's going to tread out in the end against Satan and all who follow him. I have trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples, no one was with me. He does it alone, and praise God, he does. And that's the, that's the end of Satan. He shall be broken without hand, and all those who follow him. Well, in application, I know we have touched on some things already, but I'd say, first of all, we ought to know Satan's devices. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. I think when he says we, I think he kind of means me. I think he means me as the apostle. I'm not ignorant of these devices. Uh, Maybe the way a Northeasterner would say that, right? We say that. We use the, 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 the plural the, the, to, to speak the first person plural. Well, so it is, we are not ignorant of his devices, but the reason why he has to say it is because they are ignorant of the devices. They're not understanding that this thing that is happening to their church, this incident may well be used by Satan to bring about their demise. And he has to tell them about it. He has to say, look, watch out. Don't be ignorant of here." Don't think of her, you know, just because Satan is a defeated foe, don't think that we're so clever. You know, he wins, Christ wins the victory for us, and we begin to think, 
well, he's no threat to us at all. And um, we don't, we, we, you know, he's so dumb. There's no way he could come up with some lie or some stratagem that would reach us in this impregnable fortress of Gateshead Presbyterian Church. That's a lie. We are not, and we should not be ignorant of his devices because he can reach us with his lies. And I will say, look, it will seem peaceable. The heretics are always the smooth ones. And very often, sadly, the true teachers of orthodoxy seem harsh and unattractive in comparison. Now, I'll say there's no excuse for anyone to neglect the fruit of the Spirit that should make us beautiful and attractive, rightly so. Uh, I don't mean that. But I'm just making a statement of fact that a heretic, you see, knows he's on the wrong side of the truth. And so he doesn't have the truth on his side. So he's not going to throw himself into study and into better refining these arguments and all the rest of it and knowing that the rest of the Orthodox Church will already go along with him in these things. He has, the only thing he has is personal magnetism and charisma and warmth. And so he throws all of his effort into those things, sweet-talking people, and showing himself to be nicer and better in all sorts of ways. And as I say, on the other hand, the true teacher has truth on his side. And you know, very often the protest will be, it's about peace. So many heresies in the church, so many of the day in which the very worst was happening, and there were some orthodox voices saying, this is, a, this is wrong, we should not go down this road. Rather, the, we, the, those who voted for the heresy said, it's in the interest of peace, the interest of peace that we stay together in the interest of peace, that we do not discipline this, in the interest of peace, that we just let this alone and all the rest of it. Now let me say, true peace is a thing greatly to be desired and to preserved at a high cost. But a false peace based on adulterating the truth is not worth having. Say it again, a false peace that is based on compromise and adulterating the truth, it is not worth having. And we cannot be cowed by that. Satan comes preaching peace, though he injects his poisonous lies. And so for us, we should be, Ephesians 4.14, no longer children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but should grow up. We should grow up, shouldn't we? And have a mature faith settled in the orthodox things of the gospel and of the whole counsel of God. We should grow up. Well, secondly, we should be constant in prayer to the sovereign Lord. Now, all of these enemies, I mentioned Satan, that he's beyond us personally, but I want us to say the other enemies, the world, the flesh, as well as the devil, all of them are utterly beyond us. The world is united only in hatred against the truth. To add to it, We have the enemy within, our own sinful flesh. It's always there. We can't get rid of it. And we've already been speaking about Satan and his very, very powerful and very successful deceits and lies. What do we say then? How bad is it? How, how, why should we be so constant in prayer? Do we have any motivation to that? And I think we do. I think we have to look around in the world and say it's pretty bad. I think we have to remind ourselves that Islam is growing. No, they haven't gotten rid of ISIS yet. You get rid of Osama bin Laden and boom, something, three other organizations pop up in its place. Secularism, 
the homosexual agenda, all, you know that all who dare to say just a plain truth without the slightest embellishment are evil and to be denounced, delegitimized, and criminalized. It's increasingly happening. How we pray for those who are given this great vocation of trying to uphold religious liberty. But the storm clouds continue to gather. Just a, how about another one? How about evolution? You understand, most people in this nation are convinced that life somehow spontaneously arose by chance, by non-living material just lying around, these incredibly complex molecules assembled themselves and began to function as a living creature. They believe that because they have believed the lie. And they'd rather believe that than the truth. And what about the church? That's the world outside. That's bad. What about the church? News isn't great. What heresy has not prospered in the history of the church? We look back at some things. We say, Arianism. Who would possibly deny the doctrine of the Trinity? Who would possibly deny the divinity of Christ? And yet for a time, the vast majority of the church believed it. And it was Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world because virtually no other teacher believed as he did. And you can go on and on and on in that list. You know, in Pilgrim's Progress, we read it, it gives me a a sad chuckle that um, there's this picture of the Pope. He's called Giant Pope, and he's grown so old and feeble he can't even cause Christian much trouble except uh, giving him some empty threats. Well, wouldn't it be a sad thing for him to know that the number of Roman Catholics in church on a Sunday in a few years ago surpassed the number of those from the Church of England, the supposedly Reformed Church of England. Giant Pope isn't dead. And among Protestants, all the old heresies are still around. New Orthodoxy, liberalism, new ones, Steve Chalk, N.T. Wright, all these things find ready acceptance among churches that call themselves evangelical. Well, surely we must pray then. That's my point in saying all these things. I tell you how bad our enemy is and how virulent and how powerful and how persuasive his lies are so that you are aware of these things and, and, and use the means given to you to protect yourself. And I tell you how bad the situation is so that we might pray. You know, God is able to do things. You know how it's, it's the conversion of Saul is described, immediately there, fall, there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once. God is able. People are deceived, it's true. They have believed a lie. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But God in his infinite power is able to make the scales to fall. And this ought to be our constant prayer for those we love and the people around us. We ought to be constant in prayer to the sovereign Lord. And thirdly and finally, we should give thanks to God for our salvation. Titus 3.3 reminds us that we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. And what I want to say there is when we think of this, these words, okay, 
The words we've just heard in Daniel 8.25, that this deceit is going to prosper, meaning that many people are going to fall by it. Many people are going to embrace the lie. Was that not true for some of you? It was true for me. That prophecy in Daniel came true, unfortunately, in my own person. I was one of those with whom the deceit had prospered. And what I want us to do is to praise God for all of us that that is no longer true. That he has rescued us from this little horn. He has rescued us from this enemy of our soul. And though we ourselves were once deceived, and though we ourselves lived in malice and envy and so forth, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful indeed that you tell us the truth. You do not tell us smooth things. You do not prophesy deceit. You do not say peace when there is no peace. But rather, Lord, you make it so very clear that there is enmity. There is open warfare and there shall be until the end of the age. And so, Lord, how we pray that we would be on our guard and that we would be constant in prayer to you who alone are able to rescue people from the, this deceit that has prosper, prospered and, and will prosper. And from this great enemy of our souls, this little horn, Satan and all those whom he speaks through and energizes. But Lord, we are thankful that he has been defeated and he shall be utterly defeated without hands, not by our own works, but by you. You, who through the Lord Jesus Christ will surely crush Satan under our feet shortly. How we pray, Lord, that the day would come soon. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.